0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Christopher I. Beckwith about his new book, Warriors of the Cloisters, The Central Asian Origins of Science in the Medieval World, and that came out with Princeton University Press in 2012. Now, this is a book that's particularly exciting um, in the context of the history of science as a field for at least a couple of reasons. First, it looks at a geographical context that we simply don't know much about in the history of science, that is Central Asia, that I think increasingly over time and as we move forward in the discipline is going to prove more and more central to the way we understand certainly the early and early modern history of science and medicine and technology in a global context. So in that respect, it's really interesting. In another respect, it's also really interesting, and that is it gives us a way to think about the movement of science and the circulation of science, the translation of science, not as a translation or a circulation of content of particular topics, but rather as the movement of certain methodologies or forms and spaces of argumentation. And you'll see that developed in different ways over the course of our discussion, and that reflects the ways that it's developed in the course of the book. Now, Over the course of the conversation, we talked about a number of things that come up in the book, um, including the possible future directions of incorporating an attention to different forms of law to the development of science, including opportunities to look at the potential ramifications for the history of science of moments like the Crusades. There are lots of points that emerged from the conversation and that certainly emerged from the book that really are potentially generative of a lot of further scholarship beyond the book itself. And so it's a very rich project. And I think it's a project that is particularly uh, or a particularly important contribution in the spaces that it opens up for future scholars to work on as well. It was really interesting to talk with Chris and I hope you enjoy we're here today to talk with Christopher I. Beckwith about his new book, Warriors of the Cloisters, the Central Asian Origins of Science in the Medieval World. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Chris, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today.
1: Well, thank you, Carla. It's nice to talk to you, too. Okay.
0: So, Chris, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to the field of Central Asian studies, the study of Central Asia? <clears throat>
1: Well, it's actually a very long story, so um, I think it would take most of our time to, to go into that. But I guess the short uh, version is that when I was in between, um, I'd begun a graduate school, I think, already uh, in Chinese literature. I had come back from uh, Taiwan, where I was studying, and I read a book that my mother had from the library um, about a Russian explorer who had been in Central Asia in, I think, the 19th century, and his discovery of... I think it's the uh, it's a fictionalized version of the man who discovered a uh, city in Inner Mongolia, um, a deserted um, abandoned city. And uh, all manuscripts were found there, and everything it was a it was a very interesting story, and it was written in a fascinating way, and and I think that got me interested for the first time in Central Asia as such, and I had been interested in um, Tibetan Tibetan things a little bit. Before, because when I was in high school, I read some books about Tibet. But um, uh, I guess that's really where the Central Asian Studies thing started. Although my interest um, when I started doing Central Asia, it just didn't follow up that early, that early uh, interest in the sort of archaeological things, or the Harahota for that matter, but other things. But anyhow, that's how I got into it. It's just because I read somebody's book, and it was a good book. It was called Kukushkin. That's the name of the book.
0: Kukushkin.
1: Kukushkin, yeah. I don't remember the author or anything else. I'm going to write that down.
0: So, what kind, I mean, Central Asian studies, um, and just knowing this a little bit from starting to work a little bit in this field and teaching this subject, there's a very particular skill set that's involved in. Doing work um, in this field, and in terms of language training and other kinds of training, what kind mm-hmm. of training um, did you have uh, in order to prepare you to do this kind of work? And especially for perhaps listeners who might be interested in this field, but who might not know kind of where to start to prepare themselves for work in this field.
1: This is a very good question, uh, and it's a question that I have to deal with all the time with graduate students who are interested in becoming scholars. So I have to tell them pretty much the answer. So I can tell you pretty straightforward uh, what I found out while uh, working on. I was a, a Tibetan ma- major uh, at the time for my doctorate, and I was also, but I was also doing other fields of Central Asia and Central Eurasia. So I had. Uh, Three different fields basically and um, so uh, I discovered that uh, in order to, I became interested in Old Tibetan and Old Tibetan was a language, a written language that is um, uh, the materials date from the very end of the 7th century um, to um, the cutoff date depends on, on different people's interpretations, maybe around 1000 AD um, and so I was working on this uh, language with my uh, professor, and um, I got more and more interested in the topic of some of the, the documents. I had been mainly interested in the language, and um, I got interested in the topic. Some of the the texts we were reading were just fascinating, the Old Tibetan Annals and the Old Tibetan Chronicle, especially. And um, uh, so I discovered that in order to find out more about the period and the history that these things, uh, these texts were talking about, uh, well I already had studied Chinese and was able to read the classical uh, Chinese histories that were relevant to it, so that was that's the most important uh, language for that particular period in history. But um, but there were others uh, which I partly worked on. I would learned some Arabic, and I realized that I needed to uh, brush up my Arabic and. Uh, And um, to do this period and that area. Um, And there are other languages uh, which um, uh, I had studied some Turkish, but I needed to learn some Old Turkic. So I took an Old Turkic class. And and there are other languages for which there aren't any narrative historical accounts. So I, I focused from my. Uh, original my early work after my my doctorate uh, on this uh, this topic of the Tibetan Empire in Central Asia my, that was the topic of my and the title of my first book um, on this uh, period and that area and uh, in order to do that when I needed to do uh, Old Tibetan and uh, classical Chinese and uh, classical Arabic and uh, Old Turkic and um, there are other things that are. You know, documentary sources uh, um, like um, well, letters and uh, legal documents, things like that, that sort of thing, which uh, is – it's very important for giving, your, uh, giving us a fuller picture and a more complete picture of the, of the cultures back then. <clears throat> but um, – but for my particular topic, um, you know, I decided that I wasn't going to do that. And so that meant I didn't really need to learn Sogdian, and I wanted to learn Sogdian desperately and <laughs> couldn't manage to get my professor, who knew Sogdian, I couldn't get him to teach me um, for one reason or another. But... Um, Anyhow, uh, and there are other things which would have been useful. Uh, for example, this is an area of Buddhist culture at that time. So uh, all those areas, all the entire area was, was Buddhist or, or was adopting Buddhism. Um, and so, of course, the knowledge of Sanskrit uh, and other Indic languages would have been great. And I really did uh, want to to learn it, but I never just had the chance. Somehow, I had two weeks of Sanskrit. But it's not necessary for writing the narrative history. What I did for that book, it wasn't necessary, but it certainly would have helped to be an endologist as well as a Sinologist and Tibetologist and all the other ologists that you need to do to be in order to do that topic in that area. And that's the case with uh, any period. And I tell the students that, uh, that you have to first decide kind of what period here you're going to do. And also, Central Eurasia is kind of a big area. And so, if you're further to the east, closer to China, well, you obviously have to know Chinese. And depending on what you're doing, you might need to pick up Japanese as well to be able to read the secondary scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, And if you're further to the West, closer to Europe, uh, well, then, uh, of course, you need to know Greek uh, and, and probably Latin as well, but mainly Greek to be able to read a lot of the literature, a lot of the sources, which are only Greek for the early period. If you're doing the early period up until um, uh, basically up until the end of the the Byzantine Empire. So Greek remains an important language. And, uh, of course, Persian as well, depending on the period later on, new Persian comes in around about uh, 10th century. AD and you have historical sources in Persian there are almost none before that so you know and so on and depending on the area partly but also on the period and if you come down to the more recent times like in these, well, from the Mongol period on the Mongol period you pick up you have Mongol then uh, and then when you get closer to the um, um, modern times you get Manchu there's very rich uh, sources in Manchu um, Manchu Empire was huge and very powerful and important, so uh, to, just for all that entire area of Eastern Eurasia you have all this stuff in Manchu and then the secondary literature uh, probably the most important single language uh, people that are working on are Japanese and then things are in Japanese mostly
0: and for Manchu studies Russian also is, is crucial right
1: Russian is important too yes that's true and then of course for later Mongol studies particularly like the Jungars that's the most important uh, research language because the, the most published research that i know of on the jungars um is in russian mm-hmm. so, um yeah that's true in russian it becomes more and more important as time goes on because a lot of that area it's now you know part of was part of the russian empire and the soviet union it's still most of it uh, to the east as part of russia that's
0: right i have i teach manchu at um university of british columbia and when students get excited about it and come to me they always kind of freak out at the beginning it's like oh, what am i going to do you know, the dictionaries are in russian and in japanese and just start somewhere <laughs>
1: <laughs> just
0: no, and just we'll
1: start, start somewhere. We'll get some manchu. Yeah, that's right. it. <laughs> yeah. So that's a good point.
0: So the book um, at hand, the book that we'll be talking about, which um, if I haven't already said, I really, really enjoyed, and I think is a really important um, addition to the literature of the history of science. So I'm really excited to have a chance to talk with you about this today. This book explores the ways that something called the recursive argument method, or what we might call and what you call occasionally in the book, the medieval scientific method, and the institution of the college were transmitted from Buddhists to Muslims in Central Asia, and from there to medieval Western Europe. And we'll get into in the course of the conversation in a few moments um, what each of these things mean and, and the reasons why they're important. How did you come to this topic in particular, um, especially given uh, the, you, you've, you've published a lot and there's a wealth of material that you've, um, that you've studied in other areas of Central Asian history? How did you come to this particular topic and where does this fall for you within the larger trajectory of your work?
1: Uh. Excellent question. I was asking myself that, anticipating that you, <laughs> you would ask such a question, and it, it's not easy. Um, uh, I remember having somehow gotten interested in, in the issue of, uh, of argument structure because I was aware of the, the Tibetan, Tibetan uh, uh, literature, um, more recent literature, I guess, uh, late medieval and on. They have this very unusual... Uh, method of structuring an argument, and I wanted to understand that. And I thought I understood how it worked. I didn't, but I thought I did. And um, I looked into the what, almost nothing was written about it. So I looked into what literature there was about similar methods that I thought, you know, were similar. I thought they were similar to the Tibetan one. And so I looked into, uh, of course. Um, uh, the, The ones in Arabic, anything in Chinese, I didn't find anything there, and uh, the the closest one that I thought was that there was was the the uh, medieval Latin one. Well, um, I worked on it, worked on it, and I just could not find uh, anything that would really link them together. There was something, uh, something. uh, that that was similar, I thought, but I couldn't find it. I finally ended up publishing a, an article. I think it's not a very good article um, on this, and, and abandoned the topic. And um, there were several reasons for that. One was that I thought that one of the the main things that would help clarify the issue would have been uh, Central Asian. Uh, ancient and early medieval Central Asian texts um, with argument, this kind of an argument structure or something like what I thought was a three-part argument structure. Well, okay, we have to go back, take an eraser, you know, and erase all of that. (laughs) That's all, all, it was all wrong. (laughs) But because I was focused on this, when I was working on my previous book that came out and 2009 Empires of the Silk Road, and that's just the general history of Central Eurasia from the Bronze Age to the present, as it says in the title. Uh, While working on that, I got to the point where Xuanzang, the great Buddhist traveler from the Tang Dynasty, the 7th century, uh, was traveling uh, through Central Asia, and he stopped in Balkh. Balkh was this once great city um, in what is now northwestern Afghanistan, It was visited by Alexander the Great. Uh, It was called Bactra in ancient times, and it's the home of the Bactrians. Uh, Bactrian camel uh, presumably comes from that area. Uh, But anyway, he was in um, Bac, ancient Bactra, and there was this huge monastery there, which is very unusual. He describes it, and I'd studied this uh, account before and written about it. But I wanted to know more about the, these texts. That uh, One of the texts that he acquired there was the largest text in the entire Chinese Buddhist canon or the collection of all the holy scriptures of Buddhism uh, translated into Chinese. It's an entire volume. It's just gigantic work. Um, and uh, he got a copy of it there. He studied it with the um, the great teacher who was at that monastery. It was called the, the New Vihara. Um, in Balkh, and he studied it there, and he he got a copy of it, and he took it back to China and eventually translated the entire thing into chinese, so we have it and but i couldn 't understand it it was impenetrable to me this weird kind of uh, of uh, Chinese. I had read Buddhist texts before, but they were more um, narrative, like uh, sutra sort of things, and that sort of this and birth stories and simple stuff. And this was um, very technical and, and extremely complex, and I couldn't understand the, the language at all. I had no training in, in Chinese Buddhism at all, so I just had to put that aside. I couldn't deal with it. Well, I'd, I'd asked somebody back when I worked on that first paper. <laughs> You know, I'd been told she was interested in this. I said, well, um, this collet Cox was at the University of Washington, not far from where you are. Um, And uh, she said... well she sent me a message saying well yeah I'm interested in it but I haven't really gotten into it yet or something like that and so I just didn't know what to do and that's one of the reasons why I abandoned it that first time while while working on my book recently I thought oh I'll just check with Colin Cox again so I wrote her a message and said, she said well as a matter of fact (laughs) just finished uh, an article with um, uh, Hiromichi Takeda um, who is a Japanese um, budologist and it's coming out soon you know and it has since Then come and published. And she sent me a pre publication copy. And I opened it up and I, you know, started reading this PDF. And there it was, you know, it's exactly what I was looking for. It's this argument, fantastic argument structure. And it was similar to the European one. And nothing like the the Tibetan one. Well, I thought it still thought at that time the Tibetan one was like it, but I I just couldn't understand why the Tibetan one seemed at the same time so different. I just couldn't make the match. But and somehow at that approximately that time happened because I was working um, on the general history and dealing with the Arabs and the rise of Islam and, and the development of. Science in Central Asia in the early Middle Ages and high Middle Ages. And uh, so I was reading about Avicenna and things like that. And I just looked – I thought, well, I'll just look into Avicenna's, you know, one of his – (laughs) <laughs> and check the translation. Of course, it's, it's, it's again, very complicated, uh, highly technical, uh, philosophical-like, uh, or scientific uh, um, language, which I was not accustomed to reading. I've read historical narrative texts. That's what I did in Arabic up until then, geography and things like that. So I got uh, some translations, uh, French and English translations of uh, some of things, his metaphysics, and that's what I started with, I think. And just by luck, I chose the metaphysics. Physics, as a matter of fact because bang there it was i saw it and i had, i don't know how i didn't see that before never thought of it but there it was and um this you know, fine scholar of medieval and islamic studies who i'd been inspired by when i worked on my first article on it um i went back and looked through his book again and and i thought that okay i thought his points i still thought his point basic point was right that there was a connection but he didn't demonstrated and so here i found the thing that he he hadn't been able to point out and show an actual example of it and this was translated into latin in the uh, middle of the 12th century <laughs> and so kabam you know i solved solve two or three problems in, in my mind uh, all at once and i thought oh this is great <laughs> you know i have to find out more about this <laughs> so i just Plunged into it and then went through this era. I looked through the Arabic stuff. I tried finding more examples and I found more things by Avicenna. And it was hard to find more in, in Arabic. I found uh, just by chance, and I, I thought, okay, there's this guy who um, was a, an important, somewhat later. Uh, um, philosopher theologian more a theologian than a philosopher I think but people differ on that um, who wrote lots of stuff and fortunately preserved although most of it's preserved that's an important criterion if you don't if you don't have the text that they wrote then you can't say what they were thinking about it uh, and I found that he uses it too and um, it's very interesting the way he does it this is Fahradina Razi mm-hmm. um, and and um, so I found two examples, and I'm sure there are many more, but it's really not my thing, you know. And this is the sort of thing that Islamists need to do. Mm-hmm. And I keep pointing this out in the book, you know, well, that's not my thing, you know. <laughs> I can read Arabic, yeah, depending. On, <laughs> um, and I had to read and translate some of these things, and it was very difficult. But, um, uh, but anyway... Uh, that and the uh, Indologists also need to work on it too, from a, a different point of view than they've done, and Tibetologists and the, and and also uh, medievalists um, haven't uh, they've had this they worked under the delusion that this is a an innovation that was just created uh, by Europeanists while they were becoming more scientific, you know, in the late 12th, early 13th century, uh, with this you know this Renaissance they call it um, at that period. Early Renaissance, and um, so that they, they sort of did it themselves, and that's basically uh, how what everybody's been trying to do in medieval studies has is, is been to show: well, it comes from this, or it comes from that, you know. Um, but in, apparently, never suspecting that it was just sitting there in these beautiful Latin, very important texts. Uh, Avicenna's works were overwhelmingly important in that uh, early 13th century. They're just and they're quoted by all the great writers at the time on uh, philosophy and theology and things like that. But um, anyway, so I, I don't know, I think I may have gotten off track, but that's, that's what I... That's
0: great. Okay. So let's let's actually get right into the book now. Um, this um, discussion of this method actually brings us beautifully into the first set of things that um, that I wanted to ask you about. So for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, and it just came out, so um, it's, it's possible that that's a lot of people, uh, the book is centrally concerned with medieval science, which you know was largely conducted in the form of public disputations, both oral and written. And it's this theme of the form of science, or of science as form, that's going to lead us through um, the rest of the chapters, and that is I think itself um, a really interesting contribution to the way we understand the history of science. Now in the course of the book, you're arguing that science, and perhaps um, medieval science in particular, is characterized not by its content but by its methodology. So this is and this is something that we'll I think keep coming back to um, in spirit of our conversation, if not explicitly um, necessarily mm-hmm. what I'll ask you about. So a central part of this methodology is the recursive argument method, and you know that this has been called, um, or a a sort of version of this has been um, called the scholastic method in previous scholarship or in other scholarship. So because so much of the book is about the recursive argument method, or what we can alternately call recursive argument or the recursive method, could you start us off um, on this road by explaining a little bit for listeners what this is? What is the recursive argument method? Before we get sort of into what happens with it and the reasons why it's important.
1: Okay. Um, well, the best way to understand it, I think, is to um, just to briefly des- describe what normal uh, argument structure is in most books and just long articles things like that uh, that people write about uh, mostly scientific topics but anything uh, actually and that is uh, most books are written as you uh, know if you read a a book on modern book on science uh, they're written as just straight text uh, just um, standard prose. It start at the beginning, proceeds through the middle, um, until you reach the end, and you stop. You know, you may have divided it into different chapters. Sometimes uh, the t- chapters are for different topics, but typically it's just—often uh, it was just for convenience to break up the, the length of it, so it it's somehow seems more manageable. It's not just one long endless text, and uh, I call that treatise format. And um, so Aristotle's works are m- more or less, all, not completely, but almost completely written in uh, treatise format. Um, other scholars, um, thinkers, as, such as Plato, um, just before Aristotle and many other ancient Greeks, they like to use what's called the dialogue format. And Galileo used the dialogue format uh, in the Renaissance. Um, and many, many others have used it. And uh, that's it it looks like there are two people or three people or four people, whatever um, participating in this dialogue. And there's all, but there's always one key figure, the leading figure, the the great philosopher, the great thinker, whoever it is, who's basically the alter ego of, of the writer and, um, or his teacher. Sometimes it's presented as if it's his teacher. Plato's always putting everything in the mouth of Socrates. Socrates, But in any case, and then the other people are just there to kind of keep keep the story going and and to ask questions and to to, uh, uh, prod the main character into saying something. So it it looks like it's an ABAB or ABACA, you know, whatever structure. But in fact, those B's and C's, uh, the other people are just there. Uh, for decoration kindly and to make it more more interesting i suppose to read i mean i love reading plato when i was in high school i read complete works of plato just because i liked his style i'm not sure how much i understood of what he was saying um but um it's basically as um, a treatise style it's a treatise not style but it's a treatise uh, argument in structure so it, it doesn't it's not really s- it's fundamentally different the thing about the recursive argument method um which was, once upon a time, was known pretty clearly to most people as a scholastic method. But it's that meaning, in that term, no longer has much meaning for most people now. So uh, some people call it the disputed questions argument. That's the uh, based on a Latin expression uh, that's uh, used for. The actual texts I have that in the title sometimes. Anyhow, um, the way it works is um, a, scla- um, a recursive argument uh, is a- an argument about an argument about an argument, or an argument about an argument about an argument about an argument about an argument, etc. Um, and so th- this is um, a kind of a literary. Um, form of recursion. Um, recursion is most easily understood maybe uh, visually when you uh, have you looked at a Matryoshka doll, the Russian nesting dolls. You have know, the little wooden dolls. You open up, you unscrew the, the top of one, and inside there's another little doll. Yeah, that's a little bit smaller. You unscrew the top of that one, there's another one inside, and so on. Until you get to the smallest one inside, which doesn't unscrew anymore, it's just a solid little doll. And that's the base case, they call it, in, uh, in the computer science type uh, um, recursion. Anyhow, uh, that base case is actually the one that you can't go beyond in, in, you can't go beyond in the uh, recursive, recursive argument method. That's the, um, the first argument. So it's, re- it seems to be structured in reverse order in the recursive argument method. So you give it uh, the basic argument, the main topic, which is uh, uh, usually uh, given as a, as a question, um, and uh, so it is asked whether or not, you know, uh, the sun was around uh, the moon or the moon was around the sun or the earth goes around the moon or the earth goes around the sun, something like this, you know, it's asked whether X, Y, or Z. And then um, and, uh, and then this, the second part will be um, uh, arguments that have been made about this argument. So this is actually, uh, this whether it is such and such a thing is in fact an argument. So uh, then you ask questions, or people have asked questions about it. And if not enough people have asked questions, or you think of some that haven't been asked, you add those into the, the whole list. You make a list of these, uh, typically a list. It, it can only, it, it doesn't have to be more than one, actually. So in fact, the first section can have just, after the main uh, argument. The first one can have just one. It can be just one argument. It's possible, and there are examples of it. I give one in the book, um, but um, typically it's a list. And that's one of the distinctive things about the recursive argument method: is that these the, these two main subsections are lists. Anyway, you give. Uh, so Aristotle says this. Uh, Plato says that. Uh, Galileo says this, you know. Um, Einstein says that, and all the different uh, views. You list them there, and then you put uh, an author's view comes in there, and you say, well, okay. This is in the medieval European one. The author's view usually comes in the middle, and the Arabic view usually comes first. Oftentimes, it's it's in two or three different places within the whole argument. Uh, but anyway, in the so the medieval U- European one, then in the middle there is the, um, the author's view. Author says, well, uh, I think such and such, you know, and. Yeah. Usually, there are two uh, opposing and pro and con views, or two types of or sets of, of views within that first group. And the author follows all well, pro or con, gives his own view about it. Then you go back to that first list, uh, which I call sub arguments. Uh, in Latin, they call them questionculi, the, the little, uh, little questions. <laughs> Cute little ones. (laughs) But so then, uh, after the author's view, then you have the uh, you go back to these uh, sub-arguments, the first one, and you you repeat them in the same order, with the same num- sometimes numbered with numbers, and you say, as for the first one, you know, uh, this is uh, correct because of such and such. Uh, that that's fine. We, we agree with that. The second one, you know, uh, is correct. The third one we think is wrong, and the fourth one's wrong, and so on. And they're usually organized in sets. Uh, so all pro is in one group, and then all con is in another group. And typically, the answers um, um, in uh, the most famous medieval uh, works, not all of them, but they typically, they eliminate, uh, they don't, Respond to ones that they agree with. In other words, they don't. If they agree with a, one of the pro views or the, the con views in, in the first group, then they don't answer that in the second group. So, but in, in a full, really full uh, argument, which you have sometimes, then they, they respond to all of them and they'll say, "I agree with this one, I disagree with that one, and so on." So you go through the entire list again. So one, two, three, four, five, six—you know, however many there are. Sometimes they're quite long lists, and and that's the end. So what it is, in fact, is if you. Um, you have um if you do it in the order in which it appears in the in the european uh, system and also in uh, by the way in um uh, in the arabic system uh you start off with it's an argument which is disputed by an argument or arguments which is disputed and those arguments are disputed by uh, argument or arguments Okay, so it's again, it's it's an argument about an argument about an argument, or arguments about arguments about an argument, and those arguments are in a uh, numbered list, and not necessarily uh, explicitly numbered, but they always in the same same order. Uh, sometimes they, they screw them up. <laughs> sometimes they get lo- they get confused that they can put them in the wrong order, but but the intention was to put them all in the right order. <laughs> so, um, Thank yeah. you.
0: Perfect. 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 Um, so. As you mentioned in the book, this is a method that can be used across topics or fields. So the important thing is not necessarily what is being said or disputed, but rather the way it's being said or disputed. And as um, we get further into the book, what becomes clear is that this is, if not the only component of what creates the conditions for something that you later describe, and and we'll talk about this later, as a fully developed or a full scientific culture, it's certainly a crucial, one of the crucial components of the development of, um, of this particular state in the history of science. Okay, so You mentioned um, in your description of this recursive argument method, the importance of, or you mentioned numbering and numbering and the importance of numbering comes up um, at various points throughout the book. But one of the places it comes up is in a discussion of the fondness of Buddhist writers for numbered sets. Now, this brings us to one of um, the next really interesting parts of the argument, parts of what you're showing in the book, which is that the recursive method developed first among Central Asian Buddhist scholars who developed it in order to disprove the beliefs of other Buddhist sects. And this is elaborated at length in Chapter 4. Can you talk a little bit um, at this point about the importance of this Buddhist context in developing the recursive method and what what this means for your larger argument? And I think I, I'm asking you to talk about this um, for many reasons, but in part because I think the um, the history of science more more broadly or more globally, um, really could use more attention, I think, to the importance of and the role of Buddhist texts and Buddhist scholars and Buddhist practices in developing the history of science. So I think this is a particularly interesting part of the book. And um, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love for you to to say a little bit about that.
1: Okay. Uh I absolutely agree. First of all, that, that uh, uh, science, scientists and philosophers, as well, really uh, have only barely touched uh, the surface of the, uh, the Buddhist tradition. Uh, there's so much there, and one my current work book that I'm working on is is directly involved with that. So I, we can talk about that later. Um, but uh, so far as the this issue of um, the, the numbered sets. <laughs> I wonder when that really started. It certainly didn't start with the Buddha himself, and almost nobody thinks that it did. But at some point, probably fairly early, in any case, by the time we start having written texts, uh, they didn't really start writing uh, anything down about <laughs> Buddhist teachings or um, uh, connected ideas until long after the Buddha's lifetime. Um, but um, And it seems that Um, The numbering thing may have been an an Indian um, idea. It probably was. I assume it was fairly early, the development of Buddhism. But it's at this point almost impossible to say much about Buddhism before the Kushan Empire period. (coughs) That was between uh, the late – well, around about the ADBC divide, that's when it begins, and it lasts for a couple of centuries, um, and a little bit before the Shaka period as well. So um, they were Central Asian people, and um, in fact, uh, their homeland was Bactria, and as an, an empire, and they spread across northern India, so they, and also into East Turkestan all the way, as, at least as far as Turfan, um, so they had a big impact on peoples around them, and uh, they helped facilitate the spread of Buddhism. But uh, what we know as Buddhism, uh, traditional Buddhism, uh, almost everything, the literature, uh, seems to come mostly out of this period, Shaka Kushan period, and um, it. Some of it is thought. Many people think that it reflects much earlier periods as, as well and it might but so what I'm just getting at is that it's not difficult to say much about how um, the numbering thing, usages and scientific uh, ideas, Might have been in a purely Indian context Um, without the Kushans. I personally don't think that it it happened there at all. um, The most important uh, sect of Buddhism, uh, the one which was really devoted to um, what they call Abhidharma in in Sanskrit, which means uh, a sort of analysis of, of, of Buddhism, analysis of of things um, an analysis of Buddhism as well. And, and in, a, in a very um, scientific way, uh, they had a way of thinking about things which was different from all other Buddhist traditions. And they just wanted to figure out the details and list everything. And uh, the list, listing probably was already there, but if it wasn't, they certainly did it more more than anybody else. They did it into the, the ground, you know, so to speak. Um, and the dharma, uh, this kind of, uh, uh, there's so many passions and there's so many uh, um, uh, practices of this and there's so many that's and this, this, this is and that's, uh, all the numbers. The, not just the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and um, and so forth, but uh, just their, their early works that they, they wrote that we still have. Most of them have the earliest ones in are thought to be lost but but we have some of them that are considered to be fairly early that means the very end of maybe the first century b c something like that um, Those texts um, are full of these lists of things and just they just read like lists and pages page after page after page, after page and uh, v- very complicated um, topics that need re- they require commentaries, so doing the lists was you know. Okay, we got lists, but in order to to really do something uh, with this material, to, to develop it more, presumably those were just um, ways of of me- remembering the, the material, and so it was a sort of mnemonic device for these lists. And the actual most of the material was was uh, learned orally and was remembered. Uh, it wasn't written down. So when they started writing commentaries, then you end up with this, uh, the lists of things were became very important. So everything was analyzed according to lists. So they would list all the different positions. I think this is where this comes from, is from commentary literature. And the earliest uh, work that I was able to find, and I think this is the earliest work that is preserved, uh, It's preserved only in Chinese translation, is called the Ashtagranta, the the uh, eight-limbed—that's um, what it means. That's one of the reconstructions of it. Actually, there are another reconstruction which means something entirely different. But um, this text um, is just consists of these uh, lists of, um, of attempts to clarify different points of the Dharma, the, the Buddhist teaching, and uh, lists of them and uh, lists of positions. You know, so many. There'll be 10, 15, 20 uh, arguments uh, about one thing. And then they'll turn around and then they'll just list them all again and then argue against them you know, or argue for or against them. So um, it's the guts of the recursive argument method uh, it just, I think, developed out of this commentary literature. But uh, I think if he hadn't had this predilection for listing and uh, numbering the the lists as well, it wouldn't have developed the way it did. But this is just my suspicion. And so far as I know, nobody has studied this. I'm sure that there are some Chinese and Japanese scholars uh, who specialize in arcane Buddhist texts that they've looked at this work. And possibly they've even written things on it. But I wasn't successful in finding out. Uh, anything more i'm i'm too far away from that field so so i can 't tell you a whole lot more I just it's something that 's really a big desideratum I think that's something that needs to be done
0: oh, that's great and and I think it is it signals in the book um, a space for uh, much much more work, hopefully by other other people to to come in and develop this this point of importance of Buddhist materials to the history of science. So I think even if, even if the book just stopped there, it would be a really great contribution, but it doesn't stop there. And one of the other things that comes in to this um, set of arguments that you're making as we come to uh, the later chapters and the sort of larger implications of this for understanding uh, sort of global patterns of history of science is, um, so in addition to the recursive method the other major development that you explore is that of the college which appeared at the same time in Western Europe as about the same time as you say here as recursive argument so let's talk about that for a bit before we bring these strands together so first of all what is the structure of the college as you mean it here because it's actually quite distinct from what we typically think of as sort of a college I'm um, using air quotes here in the context of a modern college or university so what do you mean- mean
1: by college here? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, actually, um, what I mean by college there is, is the, the traditional sense of college in English, uh, When you, um, if you're familiar with, uh, you may not be familiar with, but if, if one were familiar with, the English system uh, in the old universities, Oxford and Cambridge in particular, and but some of the others as well, I think most of them have colleges. Uh, the university Uh, is a sort of a superstructure uh, corporation. And that was the medieval system, which has sort of been preserved, especially at Oxford and Cambridge. Um, And the colleges were uh, each – there are many, many colleges. Um, They were founded by different donors who uh, um, made a bequest uh, to – the a number of scholars and it's a, it's a inalienable well, it's, i don't know if, i don't know if it's inalienable but anyway it's a, a, a tax free um, donation um, to uh, establish and fund uh, a college which would be uh, which is a um, um, an institution that ha- that paid for students uh, a small number of students usually just uh, you know an, a dozen two dozen something like that <clears throat> typically uh and a master sometimes more than one master uh, a library and some and so on um by the time it got to england it, it was certainly a building um the first one that we know in western europe was in was uh, established in paris in um the um, late 11th 12th century um it uh they first had quarters in, in an existing building, but a couple of decades later, they had gotten their own, uh, <clears throat> their own building. So this is normal that they had their own building and they owned the building. So they, this, uh, uh, college Foundation, you might call it, uh, <clears throat> pious foundation. And it um, they owned the the building. They they had a uh, fund of money to pay for the students and the and the teachers and and food and drink and so on. Uh, so the all the basics. Uh, it was um, kind of a self uh, enclosed or was it a um, all included all inclusive sort of package and. Um, um, like a, a mini a miniature version you might say of, of one of our universities or colleges, a very, very small one. <clears throat> um, and um but once you've started getting more of those, then uh, you you have a, a more of a uh, what is it? Um uh, enough scholars that, uh, besides students that you can have an academic community, you might say, a scholastic community where people have dis- disputations with each other as well as training the students how to do it. Because this is one of the, the main things that they did. The, one of the main methods of education uh, in those colleges. And this goes right back to, of course, the European one. I'm talking about the European one, but it's the same, it was the same in the medieval uh, and classical Arabic ones, the madrasas, which, uh, not what the word is used to mean today in some places in the Islamic world um, and uh, then uh, the Buddhist ones that they simply had modified it and made it Islamic after the Central Asia converted to Islam so they were doing the same thing they were arguing and disputing these dis- dis- disputations, that's how most of the education was done orally um, And but they had a small library, sometimes they had a big library, it was a big madrasa or a big vihara, the Buddhist ones were called viharas um anyway so um, um, in this uh, in this a mini college—it was a college in our in our sense, but very small. So uh, if you, you talk about a college like a small university, we, our colleges in America are actually small universities. <clears throat> but the university, so-called university, at the time when these colleges were first built in Western Europe, the so-called university wasn't a university at all. And, and you read many histories; they say, "Oh, the Europeans first—they developed the university, and after that, uh, then they might mention the colleges, but usually they're just forgotten about." And I so I was very puzzled when I was working on this and had to read a lot of literature about the history of education, educational institutions in Western Europe, and it's pretty well understood in the specialist literature that the college was a very important new thing that just appears uh, in the late 12th century. And they started building one after the other. It was a very good idea. Um, and it, the university itself was uh, like, like a trade union. It was nothing like what we call a university, had nothing like it. it had the, the only thing they had uh, – that's similar to our university is that they had the right to uh, or the power to license give people a license to teach so in other words to hand out degrees and that was it and it was uh, a group of scholars and included the students as well so um the colleges were completely different. They had their own buildings. The university didn't have its own buildings. They, they um, the, the college had uh, the students and the teachers lived together in the same place. And they still do in those uh, colleges at Oxford and um, Cambridge. So and in Central Asia – the, the building itself took on a special form in antiquity, a Buddhist uh, design of a college, and this was spread by the Kushans uh, in various directions, and it continued to develop in Central Asia until just before Islam, it developed the form, exactly the form of the classic Madrasa, the Islamic college, which you know continued the early Buddhist one, but simply as an Islamic institution, they're identical and uh, very special architectural form. It's very interesting, uh, but um, when it got to Europe. Um, it seems that they used this architectural form as well, but I, I can't say that it you know, was transmitted at the same time, but it probably along with everything else that the Europeans were just uh, fascinated with everything coming from the classical Arabic and Islamic world, and they adopted just about everything they could. It was, just, it was the, all the cool stuff, you know, the great stuff, and uh, that was one of the things I guess they adopted too. Okay.
0: So, I'll, um, I'll mention also here that you, you've just... Uh, mention the the importance of the architectural forms here, and I'll just kind of signal for listeners who are interested in uh, the archi- history of architecture, history of archaeology as well. There's a really interesting moment in that discussion where you're. Um, Engaging these different, I mean, these kinds of forms of evidence that we don't often see incorporated into history of science arguments in a really, really interesting way. So I particularly like this discussion um, for all kinds of reasons, but in, including the the really, I think, expert weaving together of um, very different forms of evidence to come up with this the, um, this argument structure. Yeah.
1: So, okay. I that that's one of those many things that need to be studied in Western European things. I couldn't find any. I'm. Sh- Maybe there is something out there. But I looked and could not find any um, professional studies of the the early history of the cloister. Uh, These things are called cloisters. And if you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, a branch of it, in New York, it's, uh, it's outside the middle of the city. I think it's not in the middle of the city, but there's this, this part of it called the cloisters. Mm-hmm. And it's all these beautiful medieval cloisters from monasteries, I think, which were dismantled and brought, some rich man donated them, dismantled and brought to the, the United States and set up there. And you can go walk around the uh, cloister and see how it is if you happen to be in New York.
0: I was a, um, when I was a kid, my parents used to take me to the cloisters, and I used to steal the oranges off all those beautiful fragrant orange trees that they have around and take them home and get yelled at, you can't eat those. Stop <laughs> me stealing all the oranges. But anyway, I digress. Um, so that's, that discussion is really, um, really, really interesting. And once we get to that point where you're showing that Rather than understanding the college as emerging independently in Western Europe, once we understand that it actually came from the vihara of Central Asia via um, the Islamic madrasa, an entire chapter of the book is devoted to explicating when, where, and how Muslims adopted these two elements that we've been talking about, the recursive argument and the college from Central Asia. And so this gets us into a really interesting Discussion of Central Asia as an important space for exchange and for um, the kind of exchange that I think we don't really understand um, fully yet, right? Which is a space for something we might call scientific exchange, or we might not call it scientific exchange, and you know, depending on how you want to position yourself in the history of science. And we'll also get to that at the end of our discussion, I'm sure. Okay. So you're showing in this chapter and in this section of the book that a lot of the features of classical Arabic civilization kind of broadly construed, actually developed from Central Asian models. Mm-hmm. including, um, your, you mentioned here a distinctive Islamic version of atomism, which is, I think, really interesting for historians of science. You also mentioned here that many of the great scholars and scientists of the classical age of Islam were Central Asians, were not Arabs, were not Syrians, or were not Persians. They were actually Central Asians. Um, so I'd, I'd love it if you could talk about that a little bit, because that itself was a really pleasant, uh, kind of wonderful surprise for me when I was reading through this.
1: Um well uh, yeah it's a good point. it's a good question and it's a it's a topic that deserves a whole book and i believe it's getting one uh, there is a, a um scholar who's um i cited a paper of his uh, fred Starr, um published an, a paper a couple of years ago on um um on um I guess science in Central Asia, or something like—I've forgotten the title—but uh, uh, and it was designed to be read by you know popular audience. Um, but it's very interesting. He, he put his finger on um, a lot of the, the key points, and um, he does uh, m- make the mistake of calling a lot of these people Persians or, or whatever instead of Central Asians, and, and there basically weren't any Persians—maybe uh, one or two. Uh, in the early period, in the period, developmental period, uh, most of the, the great scholars um, came from uh, Central Asia, and you know, very often quite far out, like Khwarezm, which is up there by the Aral Sea, um, or uh, anyway uh, on the edges of it, you might say. So area of what is um what was already becoming uh, Turkestan it wasn't completely yet but their Turkic peoples had been migrating in that area for some time so uh these were different people and they had quite different traditions and uh and a different way of um of looking at things and i think i lost your 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 question (laughs)
0: no 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 that's that's um that's actually that's perfectly fine it's um I wanted to sort of use this to sort of segue us into the, perhaps the the final set of questions that I wanted to ask you anyway. So, um, but I'll just mention very um, briefly, one of the writers that you talk about in, um, in discussing the importance of Central Asian's To um, sort of the history of scholarship and the history of science was um, Ibn Sina or Avicenna. And one of the really interesting things that comes out of this that I won't won't ask you to talk too much, or I won't ask you to talk about it all, but I'll just signal um, as one of the really interesting threads in in the book that comes out, perhaps implicitly, he actually learned the recursive method from a legal scholar, as you tell us in the book. And one of the, the, I think, interesting threads throughout the book that starts in the preface and continues throughout Occasionally, the chapters come back to the relevance of law um, and of legal history, to the history of the recursive argument method um, in medieval Latin, in classical Arabic, and in early Indic texts. And that's just sort of another possible set of issues that would be really interesting, I think.
1: Yes, uh, you're you're absolutely right. And I I mentioned, I think, in the preface somewhere that, boy, if there's anything I don't understand, uh, it's law. And... uh, I don't understand it in English, really. And the whole uh, I, colleagues of mine are interested in it. I get into arguments sometimes, but I I'd try to get out of them because I, I don't understand law and I don't even like law. So difficult for me to deal with um, but um, but is this is absolutely right uh, there's something but the law that we taught that, that this um, that these texts uh, talk about aren 't really it 's not really the kind of law that we usually think of you know it 's not the law of torts or whatever uh, the, you know, the uh, inheritance law stuff like that it 's it 's the kind of um um, it's not exactly – it's not even canon law. I think even compared it to canon law at some, at some point. It's not really like that, but something more like that. But it's more like sharia in, uh, in Islam. That was never a system of law that was actually ever put into practical use anytime until very recent times with this uh, fundamentalism. And people started trying to implement actually this uh, Islamic law. It was a, an ideal sort of law. It was sort of – a. it wasn't – uh, the thing you actually did, if you if you got in trouble with uh, the law, somebody accused you of stealing something or you know whatever. Normally, you you went to the, the court. There was a judge, and it was all um, secular law from early Islamic period right down to the recent times. They had their own uh, secular law code, so it's like if you're accused of stealing something in the department store, you're not going to go to the uh, the cops are not going to take you to the local church and tell you to, you know, see the priest who's going to go check through canon law and uh, the law of theft. You know, but this is uh, so it's something completely different, and uh, it makes it even more difficult uh, for me to understand, in a sense, uh, what they were really doing. But yes, um, law is something. Uh, it, I don't think this is where the the, the method really comes from originally, but mm-hmm. because. Um, um, Buddhists, uh, they were living in monasteries. Uh, the Vihara was, it's the same word uh, for monastery. Uh, so we say Vihara is a college. Yes, it was a college, but it also, can be translated and often is translated as monastery. Uh, it's where the monks lived and they studied there as well, of course, and uh, taught there too, did all sorts of things. But um, uh, so then the, the rule, the monk's rule, uh, just like the rule of St. Benedict for Benedictine monks, that's an important thing. And they had to know about it. And they had to you know, follow it. And they all learned it. So that's uh, a very, but it's a very small part of this. And I, I think it's not the key thing. But the un- interesting thing is that, yes, Avicenna learned it from um, a, uh, an Islamic teacher of jurisprudence and uh, orally. And, learn how to dispute using this method and that's what he describes uh, very vividly so um, it was just being used that way um, how it ha- what it had to do with law per se I, I, I guess I did it had, but it was this Islamic law not the kind of law that the kings uh, the sultans or whatever of the realm were actually using in their day to day work it wasn't that at all it was this, this, this ideal, ideal law I think that's right. I think that's right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what, as we sort of, perhaps a good place to start uh, coming to the end of our discussion or coming to the conclusion is by looking at the kind of broader argument about the history of science that you're using these different threads to make. And this is coming at the um, end of the book. You argue here that because the recursive argument method in the college were not fully integrated into the early Islamic world, um, for example, a full scientific culture or a scientific culture complex didn't develop there. So let's talk about this um, as a way of, of bringing this to a conclusion. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, um, because you make a distinction here and there's an entire chapter that explores uh, control cases for trying to understand what it took to produce a fully integrated scientific culture and what the, what the qualities of that were by looking at different cases in which one or more of the components that you are Arguing for, was that we're actually missing? Um, what could you say a little bit about what you mean here? By positing a fully integrated, um, sort of, by a fully integrated um, recursive method in college, and how that's related to um, this idea of a full scientific culture. So, what is a full scientific culture or a fully integrated scientific culture? And can you talk about that um, or the importance of that more broadly for the way you're understanding the history of science in this last part of the book?
1: Well, okay, I'll do do my best. <laughs> <laughs> This is, I'm sure, the most controversial part of the book, and uh, I just, uh, just uh, all I can do is to present what what I have concluded on the basis of that research in that book. I'm so. yeah, sure.
0: That's all That's all I'm asking, just to kind of put that out there, because I think um, whether or not um, a reader reads this and says, yes, you know, I completely agree with that, or no, I completely disagree with that, it at least presents a place to start looking at this broader set of issues. So I think it's a contribution regardless of whether or not, you know, it, it's – it's going to be, regardless of whether or not any particular reader agrees or disagrees with the conclusions based on the research, it's, it is a contribution and it's important be perhaps because, um, it's going to be controversial, right? I mean, I think if it weren't controversial, it wouldn't be as useful.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but anyway, so, so can you, can you talk about that or what you found, what you concluded on the basis of the research that you did for the book?
1: Sure. Um, Yes, um, I I had uh, to grapple with this. Uh, The entire time I was working on the book and when I was working on the revisions um, after the peer reviews, then I... I just kept finding additional things. And so I kept thinking about this the whole time and struggling with it. Um, What did I mean by it? You know, I got this concept and I I need to to pin it down a little bit more. Um, And by doing the test cases that you referred to, I went through all the different major civilizations that I was familiar with at around that time in history that, um, when this method and the college starts appearing and, um, um, I just found that um, I, I couldn't find a direct link um, within, either with those, um, having those uh, elements or other things such as Aristotelian uh, science and Aristotelian philosophy or whatever uh, logic and so forth. Um, none of them seemed to uh, really... Uh, by themselves, uh, provide the answer to uh, how science—a full sense this this uh, full science that what we developed in Western Europe—why uh, did it develop there and it not not die out, and why did it become so entrenched? Why did uh, uh, science sort of characterized practically everything in, in Western European culture? By the time you get to the Renaissance, you know you have people. Painting pictures scientifically, you know that's what uh, uh, perspective is all about, and uh, chiaroscuro, the uh, light and shade, and all that sort of thing. They were looking at things in, in a particular way, and they talk about their treatises about it, which are um, yeah, which read more like scientific treatises than like anything else sometimes. And um, and uh, everything else uh, was affected by it, uh, this way of looking at the world. Um, well, how did? Why was it so special? Why did the Europeans do that? Everybody else thought it was just weird, I think. Uh, Or they just simply didn't comprehend it. Uh, Whereas the Europeans got to the point where they didn't understand why uh, the rest of the world didn't understand what science is all about. And they thought, oh, they're backward because they don't, you know, have this idea of science. And um, it's just a a special thing that developed there. Yes, well, why? So um, it occurred to me that at some point that, okay, I went through all the different test cases like China and India and Tibet and so on, and the Islamic world, the Greco-Roman world, the Byzantine Empire, they had, the Greeks and Byzantines, they had continuous knowledge of Aristotelian science from the time of Aristotle and his predecessors and all the way down to the fall of the Byzantine Empire in 1453. So we've got well over a millennium of continuous knowledge of Aristotle, but they never developed, uh, you know, Anything like what Europeans developed this full scientific culture. They didn't develop, of course. They didn't develop the college. They didn't have colleges, but uh, and they didn't have the the, this scholastic, uh, the recursive argument method. Um, But uh, was that really crucial? All these other places had the recursive argument method. They did have a college. Uh, They even had uh, um, some. Uh, Bits and pieces of Greek science, like Tibet, for example, why didn't they develop a full – what I call a full uh, scientific culture or scientific culture complex – and I think it might be that uh, it was it's, uh, the best comparison is not really uh, with, um, or the best way of looking at it is not to, to look at it uh, the way I've just been describing it, trying to figure out by looking at all these test cases and so on. But it came to me while working on the conclusion. There's a, um, a recent example, which is a, an excellent example of how somebody got science, and that's Japan. And the 19th century, um, the Americans sailed there with their big, powerful ships and, uh, and forced the Japanese to – which had closed their, their doors to the outside world for a couple of centuries and forced them to open up again. And uh, that brought about uh, – and the threat of American military, uh, European military, and so on, which was all over East Asia, was such that the Japanese realized we have to do something now. And they had a revolution the revolution was to put the king back on the throne. <laughs> this is not the thing people normally imagine as a revolution, but it was a success. He was a, a, a progressive thinker, the emperor Meiji. And he just said, okay, we've got to copy everything those guys are doing. And so they copied everything. Europeans and Americans were doing everything, including the strange clothes, the the big top hats, you know, look like stovepipes and and all this stuff. And just basically said, OK, we're not going to do this old Japanese stuff anymore. We're going to do this stuff. And within a couple of decades, they had uh, adopted – And learned the technology, the basic science, and everything else, uh, legal system, economy, uh, baseball, all kinds of things uh, were developed within a few decades anyway um, after this revolution. And it was just all imported en masse, you know, all at once. So... um, Okay, that's a model that if we look at that, look, think about that as a model and then go back and look at medieval Europe, which is our only example of a culture that developed this full science before modern times. Um, And then we see what happened. Well, the Crusades were exactly this kind of an event you know this massive uh in, uh influx of of culture every everything from uh, poetry and song and dance uh, to science uh, was just you know everything that came from there was great it was fabulous i'm sure fashions and everything were just as important as everything else uh, but um and I think this is the, the maybe the reason why. It came in all about the same time. And so the college, which had been part of the Islamic uh, civilization, was there, you know, but wasn't being used really for science. Um, but it came over. It was such a good idea. Europeans brought that in as well. That's something intellectual. All the intellectual stuff kind of moved into the same sort of. Um, box, you know, they, there's this, this uh, category for for educational institution, another one for your your the way you argue, uh, and another one for uh, the kind of uh, uh, topics that you like to argue about, and and that's in the, the, the past literature about it, the Aristotelian literature especially, and the commentaries on it, and so forth, all that stuff was sort of one category of of, of the Western European culture. And since it was all one category, and the church supported it uh, a lot. Uh, so um, it was successful. And I, I, I guess that's the uh, – this is my s- suspicion. But this is a, a huge topic. And it's something that um, if medievalists don't just all dump on this and say, you know, well, you know, it's uh, it's all wrong. It's not what we think. It's not what we say, you know. Uh, I'm a medievalist too, by the way. I say we, they, you know. I, right. I shouldn't do that but anyhow um so um uh if they just uh, if medievalists as a whole just say well it's we're not interested we're going to stick to the old ways because that's the traditional gatekeeper way of doing things um then unfortunately it won't go anywhere i think but um but I think it needs to be looked at, it needs to be thought about in a different way than has been done before, which has been very piecemeal. So uh, the people doing poetry, for example, well, you know, the uh, Provençal poetry, you know, the troubadours and everything, that was just grew out of a wh- Latin poetry. And- he's an example you can see it you know and so on and so on and so on and that's still argued to this day you know whereas it was known in the Middle Ages and down to the present is that the people went there, they came back singing these funny songs from they went on campaign in Spain. Um, and came back singing different songs with uh, different kinds of, uh, of lyrics and everything and it caught on. It was popular stuff. It was just a part of the culture that you got and it was you know a whole part of that whole package. And I think if we look at it, instead of looking at it just piece by piece and say, oh, well, we can always uh, try to find some Aristotelian origin, even though nobody's ever been able to find it, an Aristotelian origin for the recursive argument method, for example. Oh, sure, we can find it in this and that. And we explain things away that way. Don't do that and try to look at it a little bit with a wider uh vision mm-hmm. uh, see what was really going on at this point in history what was this, it was the crusades hello you know that was the big event and everybody was just you know um involved in them or concerned about them or uh talking about them and it lasted for quite a while and right exactly when this this transmission took place so that's kind of my um I didn't make it that clear, I think, in the conclusion. But uh, I keep thinking about some of these topics after after the book is done. You know. Okay. Well, that, yes, yeah.
0: that's great. And I, as I I, prom, I sort of promise, I sort of promise that this will be the last question that I ask you before we wrap up. Um, but one of the things, as we come to the close of the book now, one of the things that you do have in the book after the conclusion is you've included a number of appendices. So as perhaps the final question that I ask you before um, we wrap up, can, is there anything that you'd like to say about the appendices and the ways that they're important to the larger project and the larger um, kind of work that you're doing in the book?
1: Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, um, well, I, th- I think the first appendix and uh, the one on the the uh, charter of the Collège de Dissouite, which is in Latin, which is... <laughs> But anyway, I wanted to include that for anybody who might be interested. Uh, those are pretty self-explanatory. Uh, but the the middle appendix on uh, Peter of Poitiers is, turned out to be um, another topic. Maybe I should have just published that as a separate article. But then you know, I, I somehow it was growing out of the book, and there's part of it uh, that is really directly connected to the book. So I thought, well, I'll just keep it in there and put it in an appendix. But it, it turned out to be rather important. Um, there are several people known as Peter of Poitiers, and uh, they lived at around the same time. Actually, there are ones I, I talk about uh, explicitly. And uh, the question is, uh, which one wrote the uh, uh, the book of sentences? It's called uh, that's um, ascribed to the one particular Peter of Poitiers. Um, it turned out that. Um the scholarly agreement that it was this one particular guy who wrote this book, and he did this, and he did that well, certainly, I suppose one guy. One Peter of Poitiers did write an original uh, text, uh, but that seems to have been re- – it's known to have been reworked in part, um, probably not by him but by his students. It's possible that he was lived longer than we think, and, and he did make some of these changes, but more than likely it was done by some of his students. Uh, so it was rewritten, and he has examples of this recursive argument uh, in it. Um, was pointed out to me by a medievalist colleague. And so um it's very interesting if if the origin- the supposed date of the book is as um, believed it would make his usage the earliest one in Latin after the translations uh, by, of the works of Avicenna. um but there's so many things wrong with this. That I, as the more I worked on it, and looked into this particular, into the work, and also to the, the career and the life and career of Peter Poitiers, such as it is known, as much as it's known, and the other Peters of Poitiers, um, it became clear that this is the present picture is simply impossible Um, there's something wrong with the dates, there's something wrong with the the text and its attribution there's something wrong with um, uh, with um, saying that uh, the the particular uh, Peter Poitier who is is said to have written the, the work, almost couldn't have written that work even though, you know, he is the one who was the the master of theology and so on in Paris. Yes, yes, yes. But, um, and this is where law comes in again. Um, He doesn't say anything about law anywhere in there, but one of the other, that's one of the standard things that are, uh, it's noticeable by its absence, because all the other writers at that time, they talk a lot about law, I mean, Thomas Aquinas, everybody else, they, they, they many of their arguments, it's the, the most disputable things in existence are, are legal topics, wow. or were, um, so then people arguing about them the whole time, and why does Peter of Poitiers the author of this book, not say anything about legal topics? You know, and he's supposed to have been trained in law, according to the people who've written about it. It doesn't make any sense. But there's another Peter, Peter of who was a canon uh, lawyer, and is exactly the right person to have uh, written about law. So. Um, that explains that, and then it would say, okay, we can have this uh, this uh, one guy uh, write the text about uh, this, this about the arguments and so on, and then he didn't know anything about law, and that's why, but then we have problems with um, separating them out, and if we go back as early as the date that's given for the Peter Poitier, who's traditionally said to have written the work, the, um, uh, the Master of Theology, um, if you go back to his the date when it's uh, said to have been been uh, dedicated um then uh, you get really close to the uh, to another peter of poitiers who was in spain and is was particip was a participant in the uh, tr- translation of um, islamic uh, works into um into latin from arabic so um uh, so he actually, you know, was there. I, I think this is just too many coincidences and too many um, problems for for me to take it uh, as as it's been received. And uh, the more I looked at it, I found okay, everything about it, the attribution, um, almost all the major points, all need to be redone. And then I have discovered that um, that the texts themselves—they have not been completely edited. Only the first two books of his five books. And they didn't do a good edition. I mean, they didn't take into account the supposed 12th century manuscripts. And I, there are 12th century manuscripts, you know. So, And they didn't use them? What, what kind of an edition is it? So um, it's just... Um, it's astounding this is something which medievalists, uh, mainstream medievalists really need to do because the, the chronology of the late twelfth century completely is is almost all hinges hinges upon this date a mm-hmm. date of uh the peter Poitier's book of Sent- books of sentences mm-hmm. and um so this is just uh, uh it, it undoes you know the the tradition traditional received view, and now it needs to be a new view needs to be put together again. And in order to do that, you're going to have to study and read all this stuff, and do a proper critical edition of his work, and so on. it's just a huge job. But anyway, I thought I should mention it. it's it's just a little footnote kind of to this book, but it, it actually in the, in the realm of medieval studies, it's a big topic. Right.
0: Well, Chris, thank you so much. Now that we've come to uh, the conclusion of talking about the book, is there anything else about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to point out, especially for listeners perhaps who haven't yet had a chance to read
1: it? Yes, the cover is awesome. <laughs> the
0: cover is awesome.
1: Yes, the cover is a uh, Renaissance painting. It's beautiful and uh, uh, they, Princeton uh, University Press. Uh, the designers made a really beautiful cover out of it, so uh, you can see it on if you look on the Princeton site or on the Amazon or any of the other sites that have books. I, I suppose you'll have a picture of it. That's right. We will. We'll have a picture of the cover um, on our site too. So. Yeah. And and the full painting has all kinds of great stuff, which got cut off in the the detail that they put in. It's like there's some strange birds walking around and all kinds of great stuff.
0: Oh, really? Maybe I'll try to find a a full version of that. Hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, so now that uh, this book is out and congratulations again um, on the book, what's next for you? What project is currently inspiring you at the moment?
1: yeah well um as i most of my other projects they sort of connected one as I suggested, one leads to another you know and um while working on this one, I got interested in uh in an old topic that I, a topic that I was interested in already in in college undergraduate uh, times, and I was interested in um ancient greek skepticism which is uh, properly known as Pyrrhonism, uh, the the earliest form of it named after Pyrrho, Pyrrho of elis was a, a greek uh, f- philosopher who went to india with alexander the great and came back and taught this very unusual um, radically different form of of thought and um, uh, it's um, I mean there was nothing like it before that, and there has been some work recently done on Pyrrho, and um, i 've done some of it myself um, I published an article on on his logic um, but um, on the, based on the greek sources but it 's bigger than that i mean it's it 's really connected with contact of of an interpenetration of these um, um, of Hellenistic uh, world, uh, Hellenistic thought, and uh, Central Asian and Indian uh, thought. And um, it, it really needs, there are people who have worked on it a little bit, but it needs somebody to work on it who is specialized a little bit in that area. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I'm a specialist in anything anymore, but. Um, but i i've thought about it for a long time anyway and i'm interested in it and um i'm willing to spend the time to work on this and it's one of the some of the major source material uh texts are 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 in greek mm-hmm. so um that and of course also in early Indic uh, sources. Um, so I've been working on this, and a little bit even in Chinese, actually. So um, it's uh, I think it's an exciting uh, exciting project, and uh, I haven't got a great title for it yet. I think I have a good main title, but the subtitle is is so long it's giving me trouble. <laughs> but yeah. Anyhow, something like that that's my next project
0: well chris thank you so much for um for talking with me about the book today it's a it's a really important book it's a really inspiring book and um i'm excited to have had the chance to talk to you about it and best of luck with your current project
1: well thank you very much and it was nice talking to you carla and uh, best of luck with your series
0: thank you you've been listening to new books in science technology and society thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time